this message was not an easy message to write. Um, some messages you feel like God just inspires you and, and you have a click and you know this is what the church needs to hear and this is what I need to hear. Um, and this message, you can ask Ruben, was not easy to write. And so I come to you uh, humble. I come to you uh, really praying that God speaks through me, really praying that God speaks to me and that God speaks to you through his word. We know that his word never goes in vain, and so that is what I pray this morning. But for the past two Sundays, we've been uh, going over the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And it's amazing that we're going through these, these letters that we've written to these churches, but that were also intended for us today in 2020. That's the beauty of the Bible, that this book is alive and active, and what Jesus was saying to these churches are also relevant to us today. And as we explore these letters, we have to be reminded by who authored them. And I said in my first message that, that the word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which doesn't, isn't referring to the end times. It's not, saying, uh, it's not talking about those sci-fi movies that we all maybe love to watch. I don't personally. <laughs> but it, apocalypsis simply means an unveiling, a revealing. And I shared that Jesus is the one doing the revealing in these letters. And not only is he the one doing the revealing, but he is the one being revealed. And so as we go through these letters and as we explore what Jesus meant, we're pointed to the very heart of God. They unveil who God is and who he intends us to be as a church, as sons and daughters of God because of his love. And I just want to begin, before I get into the next letter, we're going to study the letter to the church of Pergamum. But before we go there, I want to remind you how much God really loves you. He loves you with the love that you will never fully comprehend because there's no human experience comparable to the love of God. God loves us so much that he decided to make something out of nothing. He created us in his image that we might have relationship with him, that we might be able to come together and sing to him and be in his presence out of seven billion people that exist in the world, I want to remind you this morning that you are important to God. In fact, the Bible says that every hair on your head is numbered by God. He knows you. He knits you together in your mother's womb. He knows every moment of your life, and he loves you. In Zephaniah, we're told something beautiful. The Bible says that the Lord loves us and that he will calm us with his love and that he will rejoice over us with singing. He loves us so much that even though he knew that so many would deny him, he still found us worth creating. He loves us so much that even though he knew that so many would reject him, that so many would want nothing to do with him, he still found us worth dying for. When Jesus was flogged, when he was mocked, when he was persecuted, when he was nailed to the cross, he did that for you. It doesn't matter how far you try to run away from God. He loves you. He sees you. The Bible says that he listens to you, that he understands you, and that he will answer you. In fact, the very essence of who God is, we read in 1 John, God is love. That is who he is. In Jeremiah 31, we read God saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving devotion. 
And so we have to be reminded that it's this overwhelming, all-consuming love that is motivated to speak to us. When Jesus says, John, write, write these letters down. John is, is in the island of Patmos, and he has a vision of Jesus. And Jesus says, I need you to write these letters to my church. It's this love that is motivated to speak to us. And so when we go through the letter of Pergamum today, to be honest, out of the letters we've, we've read so far, this one might sound a little more harsh than the other ones. But we have to be reminded that Jesus is intentional about every single word he says because he wants to pour that all-consuming love on us and he wants to bring us back to that love. And I really appreciate how personal these letters are. Jesus takes special care in talking to different communities that find themselves in different environments, going through different struggles. And the letters have this consistent structure as Jesus always begins by identifying who he is in a particular way that will resonate in a special way with that church. And so in the first letter, the church to Ephesus, a church who had lost their first love, Jesus says, I am the one who holds you. I am the one who cares about you, that you may keep shining bright. And then last week, Reuben spoke about the church in Smyrna, a church who was persecuted. And Jesus begins his letter by saying, I am the first and the last, the one who is eternal, the one who is forever, but also the one who was persecuted. Also the one who suffered. Also the one who was killed. And so I understand you. And then to the church in Pergamum, the church, that, the letter that we're going to read today, he identifies himself as the one who holds the double-edged, who has the double-edged sword. We're going to get right into it in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Jesus says to the angel of the church, remember if you've been here, the angel simply means messenger of the church, a leader in the church, possibly a pastor in the church. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now we know that throughout scripture, the sword is a reference of the word of God. It says in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, for the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. This is the power of the word of God. And we can't emphasize it enough here at Riverside. Pick up your Bibles because there is power in this book. This book has the power to inspire you. It has the power to equip you. It has the power to, to show you, to zoom out from our, from our limited perspectives and see the bigger picture and see that God is good despite our circumstances. There is power in this book. And no wonder the enemy tries to make us complacent about reading our Bibles. No wonder we so easily get distracted from reading our Bibles because the Bible makes us uncomfortable. The Bible challenges us. The Bible's like a mirror where I can see who I am and who I'm meant to be. The Bible challenges us to repent from our sin and come back to God. The Bible says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful so that we may be equipped to do every good work. The Bible is a lamp unto our feet. It gives us direction. It gives us purpose. The Bible is a constant in our lives. The word says that while the grass may wither and the flowers may fall, the word of the Lord endures forever. And so things may come and go in your life. 
riches and health and relationships and people may love you one day and they may fail you the next. But the word of God, it says in Psalm 33:4, the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. And so to the church in Pergamum, Jesus identifies himself as the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. He is pointing them to the authority of his word, to the consistency of his word, to the faithfulness of his word, to the power of his word. He says, listen, in this, in this environment where you have so many other things claiming authority, in this environment where so many people are trying to distract you with the culture around you, I need you to understand I am the one who has authority over all. My word is powerful. I need you to look at me, to focus on me, focus on my word that will never fail you. Pergamum, which is modern-day Pergamum, in Western Turkey. It's actually really interesting that the first time we started this message series, we didn't know, but um, a brother had just, where is he? There he is. <laughs> he, he, sorry? Norbert, yes, sorry. <laughs> he actually was a missionary in Western Turkey and ministered in the different, uh, different churches that are actually part of these seven letters that Jesus wrote to. Um, but Bergama, of so many things that it was known for, it was especially known for idol worship. Pergamum was the first city in Asia that built uh, a temple for Caesar. And so everyone had to bow down to the Roman emperor. And the Roman government tolerated all sorts of religious practices as long as they also recognized the emperor as a deity. And so in Pergamum, you would go to the temple of Athena if you wanted some wisdom and some inspiration. You go to the temple of Dionysius if you just wanted some fun. This was the god of wine. And so if you lacked some fun in your life, that's the temple you would go to. And then if you were sick, you'd go to the temple of Asclepius. And now this is a temple I would never go into because history tells us that people would go into this temple and they would lie down on wet, dark floors. And if snakes, they just had snakes roaming around this temple, and if a snake would slither over you in your sleep, it was believed that you would be healed. I think I would die in that moment <laughs> if that happened. <laughs> but and so Christians in Pergamum, with all these different temples and all this different idol worship, Christians in Pergamum had to ask themselves this daily question, who do I believe? When I'm sick, who really has the power to heal me? When I'm down and when I'm sad, who has the power to give me joy? When I don't know why I'm here, who has the power to give me purpose? When I'm lost, who has the power to find me? In this culture that put their trust in anything and everything, Christians and Pergamum had to decide who would they turn to. And today we're faced with the same daily question. You see, life is complicated. There are times when we're sad and we don't even really know why. There are times where we struggle with our purpose and the questions of why am I here? What am I here for? There are times when family members get sick, when bad things happen to good people. There are times where things get messy and life gets messy. And in those times, we have to ask ourselves, who do we believe? Who do we turn to? Who can really satisfy my needs? Who can really encounter my problems? People don't understand. Who can really be there for me? And Jesus says in John chapter 4, he says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them 
will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, I can satisfy your needs. I can really fulfill you. Whatever you need, I have authority. I have power over it. And so we continue in the letter and through the letter, we understand that the Christians in Pergamum, they chose Jesus. In the midst of all that, they chose to turn to Jesus. They believed in the power of Jesus. Jesus continues in the letter. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. It's pretty strong. We'll unpack that soon. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Again, Jesus says, I know. In all these letters that we've read, Jesus says, I know. He says, I know you live in this immoral city. Not only was Pergamum known as a place of idol worship, but culture revolved completely around drunkenness and sex. And we know that where there is drunkenness and sexual immorality, there is hurt, there is pain, there is shame, there is betrayal, there's rape, there's all sorts of horrible hurt. People fall apart, marriages fall apart, families fall apart. The Bible says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In 2 Corinthians, Paul refers to Satan as the God of this age. And so Jesus says plainly, I know where you live. I know you live in this city where Satan rules and, and culture is completely consumed by promiscuity and idolatry and sin that only leads people to self-destruction. I know. And in the same way, Jesus knows where we live. Jesus knows that you live in a culture that many times couldn't care less about him. I know that culture that surrounds you is trying to constantly pull you away from me. I know that as you turn on your radio, all you hear is foul and perverse language. I know that while you're married, culture around you is constantly trying to pressure you into unfaithfulness and normalizes divorce as if it was an option that you could just easily choose. I know the culture around you. I know that your kids are in a school that are being taught values that are not my own. I know where you live. I know that it's not easy to follow me. I know that it's not easy to stay true to my name. I know. And yet we read that the Christians in Pergamum, they remain true to Christ's name. And we don't know much about this Antipas that Jesus is talking about, but we know that he was a martyr who died for the sake of Christ. And now I, I, I want to remind us that many times martyrs were not these big heroes. They weren't world changers. Martyrs, the word martyr just comes from the Greek martis, which means witness. A martyr was just a simple person who said, I know what I know, and no matter what you say, I won't back down. A martyr is someone, an Antipas was someone who said, I know that Jesus is true, and no matter what you say, I won't back down. It's someone who knew that the gospel was worth laying down his life for, who took up his cross to follow Jesus. And we know last week, Reuben talked about persecution, and many of us will never face persecution in this way. But when Jesus says, follow me, take up your cross daily, are we ready to take up our cross? To surrender it all every day for the sake of Jesus' name. 
And so Jesus commends them. He encourages them. He says, I know where you live. I know that it's hard to follow me. And I know that you have stayed true to my name, that you have continued to believe in the power of my name. But then he says, as we continue the letter, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. To Ephesus, he said, I hold one thing against you. To these guys, he has a few things. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The church of Pergamum is known as the church who compromised. And Jesus makes a few references here. He says, you hold to the teaching of Balaam and you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so I, I feel like we need to unpack that. What is he talking about? Who's Balaam and who are the Nicolaitans? And so let's start with the teaching of Balaam. If we go back to the book of Numbers, we see that the people of God, the Israelites, they were going through the wilderness on the way to the promised land and that they encamp around a, just before a place called Moab. And the king of the Moabites, his name was Balak, he looks at the people of Israel and he knows that the hand of God is upon them and that they'll be impossible to defeat. And so he calls this prophet named Balak and he said, Balaam, sorry, Balak is the king, Balaam is the prophet. And he says to this prophet, I need you to curse these guys so that I can stand a chance to defeat them. And so Balaam, the prophet, he goes to God and he says, God, this king, he wants me to, to curse these people. And God says, you can't curse them because they're blessed. And so Balaam goes back to Balak and he says, listen, I, I talked to God and, and I tried to curse them, but I can't because they're blessed. And so it's not going to happen. And Balak gets really angry and he says, but I'll give you all the riches in the world, whatever you want. And he tries to bribe him and, and tell him, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And Balaam says, sorry. And three, four times he says, sorry, I can't, I literally can't bless, curse them because they're blessed. And it would be fine if the story ended there, but Balaam wasn't about to miss this opportunity. He had a lot of riches that he was about to gain. He had a lot of reputation, a lot of popularity he could gain if he did this. And so what Balaam does is he compromises. And he tells Balak, he says, listen, I can't curse them but I know how you can curse them. And he tells the king, he says, the key to defeating God's people, ironically, he says the key to defeating God's people is by getting them to compromise. And so we read in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 and 2. While Israel was staying near Acacia, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people, ate in the, the people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. And so what happens is that at the advice of Balaam, Balak sends some Moabite women to the Israelites. And these women, they, they go to the Israelites, and the Israelites start talking to them. And they start hanging out with them. And they go on one date, and they go on another date, and next thing you know, they're sleeping together, even though they know they shouldn't. And they're sleeping together, and the more that they're hanging out with these women, all of a sudden, their language starts to change. All of a sudden, their goals that were so kingdom-minded are now materialistic. All of a sudden, they find themselves doing the very things that they said they would never do. And they start 
worshiping other gods. God said to the people of Israel, the first commandment, and you shall love me and you shall have no other God. But these Israelites, they start to compromise. They get onto this slippery slope and next thing you know, they have completely left the ways of God. You see, in 1 Corinthians 15.33, we read, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. See, so often we ourselves, we think we're so strong. We think our faith is so strong. We think that, no, we'll never be tempted. No, I would never do that. I would never do what those people are doing. And so we put ourselves in questionable situations. We fall right into the enemy's trap. And before we know it, we're acting in ways that we said we would never. We've developed habits and behaviors that we know are not pleasing to God. That passion that we used to have for the house of God, that zeal that we used to have for his name, now we're just kind of going to church when we can and praying when we can. And we call ourselves Christians, but we know that we're living a life that is not really pleasing to God because we compromised. And then Jesus refers to the Nicolaitans. He says, you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So who are these guys? We read in the first letter to Ephesus that the Nicolaitans were people who claimed to be Christians but were not really living accordingly. They were so mixed with culture around them that they no longer knew right from wrong. Their Christianity was so filled with compromise that Jesus wanted nothing to do with it. And so while the Christians at Pergamum, they professed to believe in Jesus, while the church was full, they were like the Nicolaitans and that compromise was beginning to creep through the back door. And by compromise, I don't mean that the church at Pergamum, that some of the Christians were, were saying no to Jesus. I'm not saying that they were saying, no, we want nothing to do with Jesus. We're going to go over here. No, by compromise, I mean that the Christians at Pergamum were saying, yes, we love Jesus, but we also love this. We also want to follow culture around us. See, they were going to church every Sunday, and they were saying, Jesus, I believe you. I believe in the cross. I believe in what you did for me, and I know that ideally you wouldn't want me to spend this time with these guys because they're doing things that aren't really pleasing to you, but I just really need some friends right now. Jesus, I, I believe you, and, and I want to worship you, and I love these songs, and I, I like that particular song, and I'll put it on replay and on repeat in my iPod, and I love you, but I know that ideally you wouldn't want me to have this job because I never get to spend time with my family, and I barely ever get to go to church, but I really need the money right now. God, I, I'm a Christian. I really am. I, I love you. I'm a Christian. I'm definitely a Christian. And I know that ideally you wouldn't want me to have sex before marriage and you wouldn't want us to live together, but I've waited so long for this person and our relationship is really complicated and you'll just understand. God, I love you. I really love you. And I know that ideally you wouldn't want me to still have this addiction, but I just can't help it. And you'll just have to understand that it's a process, God. God, I really love you. These Christians were going to church and were saying, we're declaring their love for God. And we're saying, God, I love you. I believe in your power. And I know that ideally you'd want me to be more patient and you'd want me to work on my anger and you'd want me to forgive that person and you'd want me to do so many things that I know are in your word. But God, this is just who I am. And I uh, praise God that you accept me. 
See, compromise says that you can love Jesus and that you can remain in sin. Compromise says that you can have it all, that you can love the world and God at the same time. But scripture tells us clearly, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Sin is simply incompatible with God. Jesus tells us that we can't serve two masters at one point or another. You're going to have to decide in your life, who do you want to please? Who do you want to obey? Who do you choose to follow? And like Pergamum, I believe that compromise is creeping into our church today in the church of 2020. You have people professing that they love God. But the result of compromise is you claim a faith that you don't really fully practice. People hold on to grace, thinking grace means that God will understand my mistake. Grace means that, that God just pours over his mercy and his grace over me. And so I'm going to make this bad decision right now, and I'm aware that it's a bad decision, and I'm aware that it's not really what the word says, but God will just forgive me eventually, and he'll just understand my situation. But Paul says in Romans 6, verse 1, he says, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means we die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We are called to holiness. Yes, we are imperfect. This church is full of imperfection. By no means are we perfect. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but God deserves more. This all-consuming love that he has for us, that is what he wants for us. He came so that we may have an abundant life. God doesn't want you to remain in sin. He has so much more for you. There is freedom of sin in Christ. And so Jesus tells them, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus warns them that they must repent from their compromise. Don't keep living this double life. In another, in another place in, in Revelation, we read that Jesus says, either be hot or cold. Don't do lukewarm. He actually says, he goes a step further, he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus doesn't do lukewarm. He says, repent, come back to follow me wholeheartedly. Otherwise, he'll come and he'll fight against them with the sword of his mouth. It's not a literal fight. He's not, not going to take out a sword and have a battle. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's pointing them to the truth of the word of God. And that the word of God will judge right from wrong. Truth from lies. See, so many Christians, we, we come to church and we, we know that we have this sin. We know that we're not quite doing the right thing. We know that we're not quite living in a way that is pleasing to God. But we, come, we keep coming to church because Jesus will understand and everything's okay and I can keep on singing. But the word says that at one point or another... You will stand before Christ, and you'll have to answer. Jesus says one day you will stand before Christ, and he will separate his true followers from those that claimed to be Christians but weren't following one master. They were trying to follow two. And we're not going to all come before God together. We're gonna, I'm going to come by myself. 
Jesus is going to stand before me, and I'm going to be before him without all of you to support me. I'm going to be by myself answering to God. And so today I challenge you, what kind of Christianity have you been living? Are there areas in your life where you have compromised because you have misunderstood what grace means? Are there areas in our lives where we've, set, we've kind of pushed them aside and we said, you know, I'm just going to keep going to church and when I leave church, then I'll, I'll deal with this other thing. No, Jesus wants you to lay it all at his feet. Come to him. And he wants to work a new thing in your life. He says at the end of Revelation chapter 2, at the end of this, sorry, at the end of this letter, he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give them some hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus says, if you have ears, listen to what I'm saying. Repent. And the beautiful thing about this letter is that Jesus says, despite the culture around you, despite how hard it is, because I know how hard it is. I understand. I know where you live. I know the culture. I know the pressures. I know the bad examples you have around you. I know the influences. But the beautiful thing is he, he says, I know that. But despite that, you can be victorious. Despite that, you can overcome. We can choose to stand out. We can choose to be pure. We can choose to be holy. We can choose to live by the word of God to overcome our bad habits, to overcome our addictions. That is not who you are. You can overcome. It's possible by the power of God. And when we do, he says that he will provide for us. And the white stone, it represents our freedom in him. In those days, a white stone was given by a jury to, to determine that somebody was innocent. And the defendant, when they would leave the court, they would take this white stone with their name inscribed on it to prove their innocence. And so Jesus says, I will give you a white stone with your name on it. You will be free of sin. And so as I close, do we turn to God? Believing that he is the one that can satisfy my needs. I don't need anything else. I don't need any other gods. I don't need to try this. I don't need to try that. All the pressures around us, we don't need that. We just need Jesus. Do we believe in that? Do we believe that he can truly satisfy us? I remember going through a hard time in my life where the circumstances were hard and, and, and I was going through pain and I was going through hurt. And my grandmother, she's a big reference to me. She's, she's actually, she's a preacher as well. And, um, and she turns to me and trying to counsel me, she said, Gabby, but Jesus is enough for you. And I remember in the midst of all that pain, in the midst of the circumstances, I kind of just, this rage came up within me. And I turned to her and I said, God is not enough. Where is God? God can't hug me. God can't embrace me. God can't encourage me. God can't talk. God, where is this God you're speaking of? He is not enough. And ever since then, Jesus has led me back to that verse in John where he says, if you drink of my water, you will never be thirsty again. I am enough. And so the question today for you is, in the midst of all of your needs, whether it's health, whether it's relationship, whether it's belonging, whether it's healing, whether it's a, a breakthrough, a miracle that you need in your life, do you believe that God is enough? 
you believe that he has authority over every area of your life and that he is the way maker, he is a miracle worker, that God is enough, that you just need to speak in the power of his name and that he will come through for you, that he is faithful to his promises. Do you, do you believe in the power of the word? Or is it just a book that you pick up now and then because you're a Christian and you kind of have to? The word of God is alive and active. It judges the attitudes and the thoughts of the heart. It gives us direction. There is power in the word. And as the worship team comes up, have we compromised our faith trying to, trying to serve Jesus and remain in sin at the same time? I know this isn't a popular message to preach at church. But this is the word of God. Have we compromised our faith trying to worship Jesus and remain in sin at the same time? Yes, we go to church and yes, we call ourselves Christians, but we pick and choose what we want to follow in the Bible. I love this verse because it encourages me and it says that the Lord is my shepherd. Oh, I love this verse. But this verse that talks about sexual immorality and this verse that says I shouldn't do this and this verse that is trying to protect me by saying, Gabby, don't go there. Gabby, don't do that. Do I, do I ever read that part? Do I ever apply that part? The word says that all scripture is God-breathed. And if we're reminded that it's this all-consuming love, that it's this overwhelming love that is the motivation behind every word in the Bible, then I think we'll start to read all of it. Because we'll understand he's not out to get us. He's not out to harm us. He's not out to take away our happiness. He's out to give us abundant life. Have we compromised our faith? When the world offers us pleasure and acceptance, do we compromise the truth? Or do we choose to follow God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls? And right now, we're going we're gonna to sing this song, and it says, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. And if you're honest in the presence of God, if you open up your heart in the presence of God, he will judge the attitudes and the thoughts of the heart and he'll say, son, you've been living this way and that's not what I want for you. Daughter, I know that you struggle with this and I know that you have this need, but don't go try to find it there. Come to me. I will satisfy. And so what we're going to do now as we worship, it's just a time to reflect just you and God. Nobody else. You and God. I want to live a faith without compromise. When I fail, I want to repent. I want to come back to God. I want to come as I am, but I want to be better. I want to be more Christ-like. 
I want to work on the bad habits that I have. I want to work on the, on the way that I relate to others. I want to reflect Jesus so that when others look at me, they don't see a false copy. They don't see a hypocrite. They see the real deal. A person who is imperfect, a person who fails so often, but a person who is so filled with a passion for Jesus that is willing to say, I'm sorry, I am perfect, and I need you, Jesus. You will never be thirsty again. And you will have a spring of water overflowing so that not only are you satisfied, but through you, Jesus satisfies others around you. Let's have this time of worship. God, I pray that you speak to us. Holy Spirit, give us the boldness. Give us the boldness to confess to you. To confess the ways in which we have compromised, the ways in which we have ignored your word, the ways in which we have tried to make sin and you compatible. God, give us boldness, give us courage. Create in us a new creation, Father. It is never too late. We are never too far. You love us and you die for us to give us freedom from sin. God, I pray that you free us from the sin that tries to hold us down. Jesus, may your love come. May your love forgive. May your love restore. Jesus, we want to turn back to you. You make the darkness tremble. Take away everything that is not from you, God. Let us live in accordance to your word. Let us live out the purpose that you have set before us. God, we want to glorify you. We want to exalt you with our lives. Lord, we come to you broken. We come to you in need of you. Do something new in our lives. Break every chain, Father. Break every chain. We want to be free. And we want to love you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds. Jesus. Name.